Okay, today my guest is Professor Jose de la Torre. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Jose as a person, Professor de la Torre is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Uh, Professor De La Torre is an AIB fellow, as well as a fellow of the SMS, the Business Association for Latin American Studies and the International Academy of Management. He has published over 60 books and articles and more than 30 case studies in international business and strategy on the management of multinational firms, the relationship between corporate strategy and government policy, and on foreign investment in developing countries. Jose has served as the president of the European International Business Association and the AIB. He was a member of the Board of Advisors of the Los Angeles Times and served on the executive committee of the Council of Latin American Schools of Management. He founded and chaired the Latin American Forum in Miami. He received the Distinguished Educator of the Year Awards of AOM's International Management Division in 2013. Thank you, Jose, for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure, Ignace. Uh, first question, uh, what, do you, what did you want to become when you were a child? Well, it depends on when you start counting as a child. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I was a teenager, I really wanted to be a, an aerospace engineer. And uh, I, I used to build rockets when I was uh, 14, 15, and shoot them off the roof of our house, of our apartment building which of course created all kinds of problems. Um, and I, I had this expectation that maybe I could be a, an astronaut. You know, I really wanted to be able to build rockets and actually ride them into outer space. Uh, so that was, my, that was my ambition. And as a, fact, as a matter of fact, my first university degree is in aerospace engineering. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Havana, Cuba. And I went to high school there and I moved to the US to go to college in, when I was 17 years old. So all of my, all of my formative years were in, in Havana. Oh. And uh, Jose, how, how did you choose academia? I didn't choose it. Uh, I just sort of stumbled into it. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a little of a complicated story, but uh, maybe I'll give you a, a brief version of it. Um, as I said, I studied aerospace engineer at the Pennsylvania State University in, in, in U.S. And when I was finishing my degree, I started interviewing for jobs with aerospace companies. And I had a pretty good record. I was uh, the president of the AIAA, which was the student chapter of the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. So I had sort of, um, you know, top record, a good leadership potential. I thought I would get lots of offers, but I didn't get any offers at all. And the reason was that they saw me, the companies saw me as a security risk because I was Cuban born, you see. And this was at the height of the Cold War. This is in the middle, 1964. So the, the, hot, the Cold War was actually very hot at the time. And uh, these companies said, I'm sorry, Jose, we'd love to have you, but uh, you, it's going to be difficult for us to get security clearance for you, so we're going to pass. And at the end of the season, the interview season, 
I didn't have a single job offer. Uh, in that, I had some job offers, but they were not interesting. They were in companies that had nothing to do with the 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 cutting edge of of the of of uh, space exploration, which is what I was interested in. So I did then the most stupid thing I could do is I stayed at school for a master's degree in aerospace engineering and therefore became even less employable. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, halfway through my master's degree, uh, I was already almost uh, three quarters of the way through when I, I realized that this was a totally hopeless exercise. And um, I walked over to the business school and I asked somebody, a professor that I got an interview with, I said, is it possible to re, uh, you know, to, to uh, retrain as a business school student? And he said, yes, of course, we would love to have you. And I was admitted to the business school, to the MBA program. And luckily I was able to do that. So then, you know, I had to take all sorts of, basic courses like I had to take undergraduate marketing because they, I didn't know anything about marketing. I had to take not a, a, a finance course and so on. And then I got into the MBA and I finished the MBA in, in one year, one year plus the summer. And uh, during that time, I began to interview for company jobs. And here I did a lot better because I was looking now for, you know, business <laughs> employment. And I got some very nice offers, particularly one from DuPont in Delaware, which was just the ideal, the ideal offer for me because it involved working <clears throat> in the international department of DuPont. Uh, you need to think that at the time DuPont was organized in a series of product divisions, departments, and then there was an international department, and the international department was in charge of looking around the world and identifying opportunities for the various business units of the company. Mm. And this was just ideal for me, exactly what I wanted to do. So I, I went there, interviewed, and I was given a job offer in that department, and I was ecstatic. And the day I was going to, I got the offer, that same evening, I got a call from the Harvard Business School where I had interviewed for the, for the doctoral program because one of my professors at Penn State had told me to interview for this program. And I had taken advantage of a trip that I did to Boston for another interview in a company interview to actually go and talk to the people at Harvard and uh, the guy from Harvard Business School says, uh, congratulations, Mr. De La Torre, you've been admitted to the doctoral program. And I said, oh, really? And what does that entail? And he says, well, we will be able to give you a partial scholarship and we'll give you some loans to cover your expenses. And I said, forget it. There is no way I'm going anywhere where I will accumulate more debt than I have now. I am already very high in debt because, you know, I had to pay for all of my studies. So uh, thank you, but uh, no thank you. And I had this other job that I was very excited about. An hour later, the same guy calls me back and says, Jose, I have good news. Forget the debt. We'll give you a complete scholarship. 
and we'll give you also a job on the as a research assistant that will cover all your other expenses. So at that point in time, I was in a very critical dilemma. What do I do? I have a job offer that I really like, and I think it's going to be very, I could be very successful at it, and it would be just exactly what I had trained for and wanted to do. And then I have this opportunity to go to one of the premier universities in the world to study a doctorate in international business that I really did only as a, as a fluke, if you will, but I will never have an opportunity like that again. So I called my, my uh, now wife, then girl, you know, my, my fiance, and I spoke to her on the phone for an hour talking about the pros and cons of this. And at the end of the evening, I said, all right, I will accept the Harvard Business School offer. And I ended up going to Harvard for the doctoral program. But it was, I assure you, it was absolutely serendipity. It was not a planned move. And it just something that happened out of, a, out of the recommendation of one faculty member who told me to go there. And I never expected to end up in a in an academic position. It was never in my planning. It was never even in my in my uh, horizon. I had no expectation of doing that. And here I am, you know, sixty years later or fifty years later. Wow, this is fascinating. You know, these uh, application packages have these. Um letters about crossroads <laughs> and students like to talk about how in a crossroads they are and no this is a crossroad this was a fascinating story um, but i always tell my students don't over plan your career hmm. because some of the best moves you will make in your career will be opportunistic moves and if you start planning everything ahead of time um, you might miss some opportunities that are going to make a big difference in your life, in both your professional and your personal life. So, so. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting, even beyond uh, interesting than the ones that you just told. All right. Um, something in my CV, I don't know. Well, you know, I, you know, I, as I said, I grew up in, in Havana and um, I came to the U.S. and I was, uh, I didn't speak English very well at the time. And I struggled with the accommodation and assimilation into, um, into American culture. And one of the things that I did, and this probably made a huge difference in my life, uh, when I was at Pennsylvania State University as an engineering student, I, I thought I, I really wanted to get to know more about the culture and the people. So I applied to a fraternity and I joined a fraternity. And that was a, a tremendously eye-opening experience because I was the only uh, sort of foreigner in this, in this house, this fraternity house. And I had to, and I learned about, you know, what American kids do, American, young American uh, people like my age. 
and what their 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 desires, their habits, their accommodation. And I, in a in a very short period of time, got Americanized. Hmm. And it was a, a, an experience that I, you know, thought at the time it was just again serendipitous, but it created it allowed me to actually blend into and learn about this culture in a way that I would have never been able to do so <clears throat> if I had been on my own as a normal student in the dorms. So, so I thought I thought that was a uh, an eye-opening experience for me. And you met your wife in Penn State. No, that's another interesting story. I met my wife in Havana when we were kids. <laughs> I met her at a party when she was 13 years old. But don't put this out because I could get I could get put in jail for this. <laughs> she was 13 and I was 16, and we met at a dance party at a you know kids party. And uh, we started, you know, we danced together that evening and then we started talking and then, you know, we saw each other here and there. And eventually she was my date for my high school prom dance in Havana in 1960. And then, uh, you know, after that, I went to the U.S. to study and then she and her family emigrated to the U.S. as well. And we met a couple of times in the U.S., but we sort of got distanced at the time. So time passed, and then it was not until 1964 that I actually started seeing her again in a more serious venue. And eventually we got engaged and got married, and we've been together 54 years now. Wow, congratulations. Uh, I, met, I met my wife when she was 16. I was 17 at the time. And we've been together since, uh, since then. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Sorry? Regrets. What is one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? Well, I guess the only thing, I've often said this, uh, Ilgas, the only thing I regret in life is not having had more children. It, it's, I don't regret anything about my career. I think it was ideal. The, the ability to sort of, to have an academic career where you teach and you do consulting and you travel and you live in different countries, it has been extraordinary. But um, we, have, we have two children, a, a boy and a girl. And um, when they were, when the youngest was about four years old, I said to my wife, let's have two more. And she said, no. <laughs> she said, I want to start my career. And uh, which she was at the time had interrupted in order to be able to, have, to care for the children. And she says, I want to start my career. I don't want two more children now because that will impede me from doing this. So this is a family joke that I will tell you now, she says, I said to her, okay, but this time we'll have the children with the nurse. We ha we'll have a nurse. And she said to me, you can have as many children as you want with the nurse, but not with me. <laughs> Fascinating. Okay. Um, but the reason, the reason I say I regret is because 
now in my old age, having them having access and spending time with my adult children and with the grandchildren is the most joyful thing. And it's really uh, a real great source of joy and satisfaction. And I'm very proud of them. And um, that's why I said the only regret I have is not having convinced my wife way back <laughs> that we should have two more children. Well, I, I can relate to this one very much. How many grandchildren have you got? Four. Well, great. Um, two on each side. Perfect. Um, Jose, about, about research, let's just talk about research. How do you explain your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Say people uh, you run across in a small village, in, in a city, uh, who are not academicians. How do you explain your research to them and how do you explain the importance of your research? Why would I? <laughs> <laughs> Why would I inflict such pain on them? I don't know. No. Um... <sighs> You know, I thought about that question because you asked, how do you explain it? And um, I don't know. Um, I guess I, I say what I'm interested in is what happens when you cross boundaries? And, you know, I finally, I, I've become over the years a lot more interested on the personal human aspects of cross-boundary interactions. Uh, remember, I was an engineer, so I thought everything fit in formulas. And that, you know, just if you explain something to somebody, they will understand it. Well, that's not true at all. And it, the question of sort of trying to interact across cultural boundaries has become increasingly fascinating to me over time. And you ask in your questions, you know, what, what are some of the things perhaps that uh, we haven't learned in our studies? And I think that's one of them. I think that, um, you know, I learned to, to over time and, and sometimes painfully what the importance of people are to everything you try to do. Any, any program you start to launch, <clears throat> any... Uh, any activity that you hope to achieve, any program where you need the collaboration of others, uh, the importance of being able to work through people is fundamental to human activity and particularly difficult for us to cross boundaries because we have to deal with people who come from different mindsets. And how to, how to try to identify the mindset of the person across the the the, uh, the table from you is, is fundamental to getting anything accomplished. And I think that is something that we have never been trained for. And it's uh, something you learn the hard way over many years. I mean, you've covered a very long time uh, in your career and you've seen um, an evolution of the IB field from the from pretty much the beginning of it. Uh, how, how, how is this evolution of the IB field uh, shaping up uh, from where we were and where are we headed to? Oh, it's um, when I was first doing uh, international stuff, it was all about 
multinationals and what they were doing. And, they, you know, it was the, the study. I was, I remember I was a student of Ray Vernon at Harvard on the big Harvard multinational study. So I sort of uh, learned from, from those people who were working there, people like my colleagues, John Stopford and others. Um, at the time, you know, what happened, what were the implications of growing internationally was the fundamental issue people were worried about is what's the impact on both the receiving nation and the source nation. Uh, and this was, you know, early 1970s. There was all kinds of issues about whether multinational investment was good or bad. Was it good for the receiving country or was it good for the source country? And um, they, we were concerned with those kinds of issues. Issues, by the way, which are still relevant today in many, in many contexts. Um, but I guess what we didn't have and what uh, some of my professors tried to do, and, and we were not very successful in getting it uh, accepted, what we didn't have was a lot of sort of detailed analytical case studies that allowed us to understand what happens when companies try to uh, interact abroad. And this is why I really admire the work of Edith Penrose, a, a woman that I came to meet late in my career and who I absolutely uh, adored in terms of her intellect and her ability to understand issues like this. And she was very early on in her famous work on, on, on this, on, you know, on, on the, the, uh, the, the theory of the growth of the firm, she was very much concerned with the role of management in managing this process of growth and understanding what it took to do it. And she based it on a lot of her analytical work inside companies, companies uh, that she studied for various reasons, both in the US and in Australia, where she spent some time. And um, I remember a project that I did with um, Robert Stobau. Robert Stobau, I don't know if you remember the name. He was um, a professor at Harvard, and he was one of the presidents of the AIB in the, in the early, in the 1960s or early 70s. I can't remember exactly when. And, and Bob Stobau uh, launched a project at Harvard where I collaborated with him on analyzing the impact of foreign direct investment by studying a number of cases. And we looked at a number of cases. I think there were eight cases. And we had to study in each one of them the impact that that case had had in terms of financial flows, people, jobs, employment, etc., both in the host country, as well as in the US where the companies were based. And we, we had to make some assumptions to track these numbers, obviously, as to what the alternative world would have been like in the absence of the investment. But we published that study in 19, I'm gonna say 73, 72, 74, somewhere around there. Uh, 
And it was a detail. There was a number of people working on the project. There was five or six of us that worked on these cases and analyzed this data. And I thought it was an extraordinarily interesting way of looking at the whole question of what are the impacts of multinational investment by looking at these case studies and, and, and extracting from them the detail about job changes in Java, what happened in one end, what happened in the other end, what happened to suppliers, what happened to uh, customers, what happened to people, what happened to uh, uh, financial flows, etc. And um, we reached some conclusions about the value of foreign direct investment, both to receiving country and to the host country under different circumstances. And um, that paper or that study didn't get the reception that I expected it would get. And it was disappointing because I thought that's the sort of very detailed clinical analysis that I was trained on for doing and that I thought would be uh, very important to the field. And in fact, the rest of my academic work is very much based on this sort of methodology, uh, but it's a methodology that is not well accepted in the academic world. Uh, and it is one that you need to struggle constantly to get it, to get it accepted. The journals, for example, are very, uh, very suspicious of anything that is based on these sort of very minute micro level analysis. Uh, well, I mean, we can talk about the current jibs and uh, they, they are changing, obviously. I mean, jibs under Alain Verbeke has changed quite significantly and they, they are now looking into these new methods. Uh, <clears throat> my question for, the, uh, for this evolution, yes, MNCs were discussed so in detail uh, as you described, but now uh, we have this new uh, isolation, uh, populism, nationalism uh, being uh, brought back uh, or revived neo neo nationalism, uh, is this going to uh, overtake uh, MNCs and globalization research, or is this going to be uh, is this going to fade away? No, I think it's it's always been there, and and you you know remember back that Servan Schreiber wrote the American Challenge, you know when he Europe was concerned about the impact of American investment on the European stage. And that was sort of 60 years ago or, or more. Uh, so the question of the, um, the, the, the national response to these international flows has always been at the core of political developments in, in both the advanced and the, in, in the developing countries. Um, remember also the impact of what happened when AT&T went into Chile and created all sorts of political trouble there in the 1970s as well. And we had the United Nations trying to come up with a code of conduct for international investment in the 1970s. So this has been with us for a long, long time. And um, it just sometimes it gains more preeminence. Uh, I suppose that in the 19, in the period, um, in the period leading to the year 2000 on, on thereabouts, the enormous growth of multinational investment and flows of investment sort of um, overcame some of the resistance 
But then it's coming back now, as you say, and um, I think the fundamental issue of how to evaluate the contributions of cross-border investment and uh, to both countries' uh, domestic um, uh, conditions uh, is still a fundamental one. And a lot of it depends on, on the assumptions that one makes. So it's bound to be still a very controversial field because what's good for me may not be necessarily interpreted as good from your point of view. Jose, if you could start all over again and write a new dissertation, what would you write about? What would I write about? Yeah, What's, what would your new dissertation be? I don't know. If I had to start all over again, if you ask me, go back to college and start from scratch, I would not do aerospace engineering. <laughs> I would probably study history. Hmm. I think, I think, um, I think there's a lot to learn. I, I mean, one of my fascinating, one of my favorite um, pastimes is to read history. Uh, I, I find it fascinating to learn of what happened in you know 300, 400, 500 years ago in different in different conditions in different countries in different um, situations and uh, try to learn something from it. And it's amazing how constant these battles are over history, over time. So I think I would start, if I had to start again, I would start reading history. And I'd be very interested also in, particularly in economic history. What, what, are, the, um, what are the conditions that sort of led people to act in one way or another? What were the... Uh, the, um, their lives like on, in, in, in the Middle Ages, for example. Um, Charlie Kinderberger, the famous economist at MIT, taught a course that I took when I was in the doctoral program. One of the advantages of being in Boston is you could cross campuses. So I was at Harvard, but you could take courses at MIT if you wanted to. And I did, I took a course for Charles Kindleberger. And I, I just admired that individual tremendously because he had a really sense of historical, of the historical uh, impact that these flows had. And I remember, for example, one class he taught us where he showed us some data that either he or somebody he knew had developed about a market in a town in France, somewhere in the Middle Ages, and then a, a government official had recorded all of the items that had come into the market that day from the countryside for sale. And then at the end of the day, all of the items that had gone out of the market because they had not been sold. And then also had data on the prices at which these items had been sold. And it was fascinating because here was a, a, a just a little bit of data from a different, a little tiny village market in the middle of nowhere. And you can get all sorts of interesting uh, insights about what was happening in that market as the day wore on in terms of the prices that were changing as, 
as the, uh, the sellers were trying to get rid of their inventories so they didn't have to carry them back to their own village, to their own farm or whatever. And it was that sort of, that sort of work that Kindleberger did that was fascinating to me. And that it sort of encouraged me to read more about these kinds of historical events. Perfect. This was quite interesting. Um, about advice, uh, what was the best advice you received when you were going through the program? A very poor advice. I, um, I hate to say this in a recorded line, but you know, I think, I think that the, um, with some very few exceptions, the doctoral program at the Harvard Business School in 19, in the late 1960s, which is when I was there, uh, was, was not a very successful program. I learned more by going across campus to the, to the economics department and taking courses. For example, I took a course with, with uh, Galbraith at, uh, at the economics department. Uh, I took this course with Kindleberger at MIT. And so I moved out because I found that the courses offered at the Harvard Business School were rather uh, pedestrian and I wasn't particularly interested in them. Um, so I, you know, I didn't get very good advice and, um, and I didn't think I was trained very well either. For example, in methodology, uh, it was, I wish I had learned more about, you know, more, uh, more statistics, for example, higher level analysis and methodology, which I didn't learn enough about. So um, my, that's part of the reason why all of my work has been very much on a more of a sort of qualitative type, I suppose. Um, but I'll tell you one interesting piece of advice that turned out to be completely wrong that I got. And that was from Ray Vernon himself. When I, um, when I started working, I my first job was at Georgia State University. And we had a great team of people there because it was, you know, John Daniels, Dwayne Kujawa, uh, Jeff, uh, Jeff Arpen, uh, you know, we were sort of the young Turks, as we would excuse the expression, uh, at, uh, at Georgia State trying to get the, um, the, this Institute of International Business off the ground. And, uh, you know, we fed on each other. We were both, all of, them, all of us were young. We had just finished our, our doctoral program. Uh, and uh, we were excited about what we were doing. Um, at one point in time, um, John Daniels left. And then we decided that we really needed a senior person there. So we got a, a chair offered to us and we wanted to hire somebody for the chair. And we offered the chair after a lot of interviews to Bob Hawkins, who was then at NYU. And we wanted him to come to, to Atlanta and to be the leader of the group. It turns out that the dean uh, in his negotiations with Bob Hawkins screwed things up and Bob said no, that he wouldn't come. And at that point in time, because he didn't feel he was gonna get the support from the Dean. And that was very disappointing to all of us. So then all of us decided, well, this is not gonna go anywhere. Let's go somewhere else. So I had this uh, job offer to go to INSEAD in France. 
So I talked to my advisor, to, to Ray Vernon. I said, uh, Professor Vernon, because in those days I still called him Professor Vernon. Um, I have this offer to go to INSEAD and, and work in, in Europe for a few years. Um, what do you think? And he said, don't do it. It would be a huge mistake for your career because if you go to Europe, there's not going to be any of the research uh, sort of discipline that you will find in American university. And consequently, you're not going to do good work and your career will stall. All right, I thought that was a sort of a very serious piece of advice and it made me think twice before I eventually accepted the offer because I thought it was an exciting place to go. And Europe, there are a lot of things were happening. The European community was being put together. There was integration. There were all kinds of cross-national issues that I thought that would be interesting to study. So I ignored his advice and accepted the offer. And it was the best decision I could have possibly made in my life because I learned so much in the years that I worked in, 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 in Europe because of the experience of European companies that were crossing boundaries every day. And, um, you know, learning, I mean, I did some case writing there. I did some research on how companies dealt with questions of um, cross-border interactions. And all of that was um, very, very useful for my own personal as well as my professional development. And I ended up spending 13 years in Europe. And during those years, my career took off. I got a lot of good stuff published. And um, I met some fascinating people that I worked very closely with. Of course, Edith Penrose being one of them. Uh, you know, Yves Dawes being another one. C.K. Prahalad, who used to come and spend time with us at INSEAD. Uh, and it was a, a very a growing opportunity for me that I would have not had had I stayed in some state university in the United States for the next 13 years. So you've got to be careful about advice <laughs> because you need, to, you need to put your own priorities in front of it. Professor De La Torre, now it is your time to give advice to young scholars. And what is your top two, uh, top three advice for junior faculty, young scholars, uh, PhD students? I don't know. I made some notes about that because that was an interesting question. Uh, I don't know. I, I think... I think that the biggest, the biggest issue for me that I would give to a, a, a young scholar today would be, first of all, you know, do something that you feel passionate about. You know, select the themes you work on on the basis of your interest, not on what is, what is the, the fashion of the day. So is passion not fashion? That is important. Because you're going to be working on this for a long time and you might as well be interested in it. If you're not interested, is you're not going to be able to do good work. The second thing is I would suggest that you keep a foot in the real world. 
that whatever work you do, don't just do it in the, in the um, privacy of your office or the library, but go talk to uh, practitioners. Make sure you actually discuss these issues with people who are dealing with them on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, because they will inform you of issues in a way that is different from perhaps you would uh, learn it in, in just reading the literature. And, they, and that may in, inspire you to add different variables to your research analysis, to your research uh, work that will be critically important in being distinctive and getting perhaps some insights into the causality of issues that you will not you will not obtain from just uh, from just um, uh, you know literature review. And so that that is very important. The second thing I would think is very important is that something we don't do enough, and I understand why young scholars don't do it because it's very expensive. Is you need to do more longitudinal research. The, the, the variables, there are two variables. You asked me in one of the questions, what are the variables that are omitted in most IB research? I think the two variables that are mostly omitted are chance and time. I think the thing that, you know, often what happens in, in, in the real world is things occur by chance. All of a sudden, something happens that changes conditions and therefore you move in one direction versus another. Um, you know, like I said, you know, the, in my own career, a lot of the things happen by pure serendipity, by chance. Uh, and, you know, I, you cannot explain it if you're looking at it from out, outside. Why did Jose do this and not that? Uh, if you don't understand that on these opportunities or these chance events occurred. And the other thing is you need to look at time. Uh, time is a critical variable that we have often not given considerable uh, weight in our IB research. What happens as you learn over time? What happens as conditions evolve over time? You know, let me give you one example. You know, entry, entry uh, strategy, which is a very big topic in the field, you know, what is the governance structure that you as a company undertake when you enter a new market? Uh, is it, you know, joint venture, licensing, uh, full, uh, full subsidiary, uh, greenfield investment versus acquisition, all of these variables that we discussed in terms of classic IB literature from the very beginning, in, from Bucky and Casson on through today, um, the question that I have often posed and that I have observed in my own work and particularly in my own consulting work is that the optimal governance structure changes over time as a function of several factors. One is your own learning about the market in which you, you are operating. When you first enter a new market, you don't know very much about it, but over time you learn a lot. And consequently, your need for certain assistance diminishes 
whereas your ability to act independently increases. And the other one is that conditions in those markets also change over time. And they become either better or worse as the time goes on. Political instability rises or declines. Uh, economic conditions become fragmented or they become more solid. And you as a, um, as a firm uh, may want to change the nature of your operating uh, structure there to respond to these conditions changing. So we, you don't see that if you look at a, the investments in a certain country at a, at a point in time. You need to look at them over time. So I think those two factors require more attention in our field. This was fascinating. For the sake of time, uh, last question. What's the question that I should have asked you but haven't? <laughs> I don't know, was it all worth it? Was it? It was definitely worth it. I, I have, I'm very proud of, uh, I'm very proud of my children and I'm also very proud of my academic children. Uh, so, you know, we all have both, you know, uh, we all have biological ch children and we also have academic children, people we have mentored over the years. And uh, I am extremely proud of both of them. And, um, you know, I'm also uh, very, very uh, sort of satisfied with some of the things that, I, that I've done. And I'm also frustrated with some of the things that I wasn't able to do. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. I was, when I went to UCLA after INSEAD, um, I was astonished as to how resistant the institution and the faculty were to new international programs. Uh, here is a you know, top rated business school in the world uh, in, at UCLA at the Anderson School. And to try to change the direction of the school by adding more international programs and things of that nature was a gargantuan task. And even you know, with you know, I was able to get a cyber grant, and I had some money to throw around. Uh, tried for a number of years to do this, and it, the movement was minuscule. Uh, so that was a frustrating and a learning experience that you need to really, you really need to change the culture more than anything else. Um, but I've also been very proud of some other achievements. I mean this consortium that I now have run for the last 11 years uh, has been a, a source of extreme pride and, and satisfaction to me. We now have 12 universities around the world that are collaborating on these programs. And it is so rewarding, Ilgas, to see, for example, when we bring together these executives from Japan, Turkey, Britain, Brazil, South Africa, and put them together for one week in a different in a country, in another country, not, not one of these, but in Italy, for example. And they work together for one week. And these are people in their late 30s. These are pretty seasoned executives who come in and do this. And it's so fascinating and so rewarding to see them, how they bond very closely right away and how immediately they begin to share experiences about their life and their frustrations and their successes and failures. 
And not only they learn about business in Italy when they're there, but they learn about each other. They learn about what are the issues that, that Brazilians are concerned about, or South Africans are concerned about, or the Russians or the Japanese, etc. And it's um, it is a very rewarding uh, experience that to have been able to pull this together and to have created this opportunity for literally uh, hundreds of executives to do this every year and uh, and acquire a deeper a deeper understanding of what it takes to be able to succeed in international business and and that was the goal and and it's been a great a great satisfaction to do that and that has sort of that's sort of my swan song because uh, you know I'm probably going to be retiring I mean I retired already several times but I'm going to be retiring for real probably next year or the year after uh, I would be 80 years old so I am uh, at that point in time I think it's time for me to retreat re I don't know to to retreat to retreat to my uh, history books and my uh, I'm spending more time with the grandchildren as opposed to sort of trying to do um, w real work. Perfect. This was fascinating. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you so much, Jose. It's a pleasure, Augusta. And your congratulations to you for having done this. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful task. And it's going to be great for future people to be able to see some of these interviews. Thank you. Thank you. All the best.